From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Webster's Dictionary defines empathy as the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experience of another. And today's Blue Sky guest has made studying and spreading the virtues of empathy her life's work. Anita Novak, PhD, is an award-winning educator, speaker, podcaster, and author of Purposeful Empathy, tapping our hidden superpower for personal, organizational, and social change. As a certified coach, she also helps family foundations translate their philanthropic goals into social impact and helps purpose-driven organizations create cultures of empathy through her advisory firm, Purposeful Empathy by Design. Dedicated to teaching and mentoring the next generation of change makers, she is faculty with the McGill Executive Institute and teaches leadership, ethics, and management and social entrepreneurship and innovation at the undergraduate level, where she was named Professor of the Year in 2014 and 2019. In our conversation, Anita will share her own definition of empathy, describe why she thinks it's so important, and why she's hopeful that over the long term, our world will continue to move towards one where we are all more empathetic to society's great benefit. I hope you enjoy this Blue Sky conversation with Anita Novak as much as I did. Anita Novak, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to have you on. And I'd I'd like to start by asking how you define empathy, because I think it's often linked or confused with sympathy or compassion, sometimes even pity. And then also, why and how did you latch onto this particular notion and make it your life's work? Mm, Okay, I love leading with this question. So the way I define empathy is that it's the innate trait that unites us in our common humanity. And I want to explain, because you did talk about these words that are sometimes conflated and treated as synonyms. So through the research that I did, I came across this host of words that are sort of lumped together as altruistic emotions. But I put them on a continuum. So on one side of the continuum is pity, Mm -hmm. followed by sympathy, followed by compassion, followed by empathy. And on the pity side of the equation, there's power asymmetry embedded in the relationship. When you pity someone, you look down on them. Oh, you poor person. Yep. Sympathy is a bit better. Compassion is feeling what someone else is feeling. But empathy is available to us as humans. It's the innate quality that we have that allows us to feel the common humanity that exists between us. We all have access to these emotions like joy, fear, shame, disappointment. So empathy is what unites us in that common humanity with an important asterisk. And that is that we don't deny or discount lived experience. So even though we can sort of feel sadness together and relate, we can't know exactly what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. So it's almost like the asymptote that's trying to get to the X axis and never does. That's what empathy is too. 
Fascinating. Okay. And why do you think it's so important? It's interesting because um, when I studied, when I was working on my PhD, I was interviewing social entrepreneurs to understand why they did the work that they did, right? Social entrepreneurs are the professional change makers of the world trying to create uh, poverty reduction or better employment outcomes or access to education and healthcare. So they're the good do-gooders of the world. Yes. And I discovered that they were all motivated by empathy. They felt empathy for a group that was marginalized or, you know, affected in some way. And they felt a compulsion to act on the empathy that they felt. That was very exciting. And then I did a deep dive into empathy and what it means for us on an individual basis. Lately, it's exploded in the corporate leadership space, corporate culture, and also sort of change the world stuff. And I think it's important because it actually changes the quality of our lives. It changes the relationships that we have, whether it's in our home, in our community, or in the office. And I think when we sort of collectively turn up the volume of empathy in our lives, we actually can move mountains. So I think it's really important, especially at this moment in time. So let's talk about turning up the volume. You you teach at McGill University. How do you impart or teach or encourage empathy with your students in the classroom? One of the exercises that we do is eye gazing. Hmm. Now, it's very uncomfortable. It takes <laughs> a lot of vulnerability to face somebody seated or standing face to face and simply look into each other's eyes. And therapists that use this in marital therapy will have better outcomes if they do a two, a simple two minute eye gazing exercise between two partners um, in terms of, you know, if they have to deliberate on a decision or if they're trying to find common ground, they have better results than if they don't do the eye gazing. Right. I find that fascinating. And I have spoken to a lot of corporate organizations lately and we do the empathy exercise and inevitably even though it's all discombobulating in the first 30 seconds and there's a bit of um you know uh, laughter kind of uh, almost anxious laughter in the beginning by the end you can really sense that people do feel connected so there's a lot of embodied practices that I bring into my class, whether I'm teaching a leadership course or whether or not I'm teaching ethics and management, which is this semester, or my typical social entrepreneurship class. The idea is that all of us as, as species want to feel a sense of kinship and connection. You know, if we go back in time to how we evolved as a species, the researchers say some 40,000 years ago that we were not the only large brain species roaming the earth. There were about four or five other large brain species, but we survived. Homo sapiens survived and thrived. Why? And the researchers say a lot of things were happening to our bodies physiologically. We lost a lot of our hair, relatively speaking. Our testosterone dropped, relatively speaking. But something really interesting happened to our eyes. Of all the mammals on the planet, we have the largest whites in terms of ratio. And they discerned that we needed to read each other's facial expressions and communicate across distances in order to empathize with each other and collaborate. So I think, you know, the history has shown that we survive and thrive when we are working together. We feel a sense of belonging. We feel a sense of inclusion. And 
I think that that is part of the human experience. We all yearn for that. But we live in a society now where we're doing a lot of things alone and we're connected on social media, but we're not spending a lot of time necessarily together, really bonding. Right. So I think there's a, an earnest um, uh, need for that. I, I read your book and I and the part about the eyes is really fascinating. And it reminded me, I've read somewhere and I don't know if this is true or not, but they there's some research that suggests that dogs might be the only animal that can read our facial expressions. And there's a belief that that's why we have bonded so directly with that animal because they can look at us and see the eyes and that's that's how they've sort of broken through to be sort of the most popular domesticated animal. I love that. I'm going to have to do some research. I, I, I read it somewhere. I think it's true. And also you're reminding me, coincidentally, I'm about halfway through Rutger Bregman's book, Humankind. Mm, and he, he emphasizes what you just said. And it kind of blew me away because one of the things he also does is he debunks all these things we grew up learning as fact. It, including including a, a work of fiction, Lord of the Flies, that, you know, these, we all sort of bought that premise of that book. It's a great book. It's very entertaining. But he actually found a similar case where it actually happened in real life. And these kids got along, they cooperated, they wound up getting saved. So I think it's really important to reinforce what you said. We are not, we did not evolve to be this species that hates each other and kills each other. We actually are collaborative by nature. And I want to add to that because some six to eight or 10 million years ago, depending on which scientists you speak to, you know, will tell us that we are descendants of the great apes, chimpanzees and bonobos. Okay. Yes. And humans have more DNA in common with both of those species than they have with each other. And I find that really fascinating yeah. as a fact. The story that we're told about human nature is the chimpanzee story that we are competitive by nature we're prone to violence and acts of warfare. And our, of course, our history is littered with all examples of that. And we have these great things like the Olympics and, you know, we're, we're competitive and we want to send, we want to send some form of flying object to Mars. I mean, all yeah, of that stuff is right. really cool. Right. But we are also bonobo-like. Yes. We also want to take care of each other. We want to, our immediate reaction when there is a calamity in the world is to feel a sense of you know, wanting to help. So that's the story we have to hear more of. The chimps versus bonobos research is pretty fascinating. And it's interesting how our culture has gravitated toward believing the more chimp-like notion that humans are by nature violent and combative versus the bonobos who are more caring and cooperative. If you're not familiar with The Lord of the Flies, it's a short novel about a bunch of schoolboys who are stranded on an island, and their ability to cooperate and build a harmonious society is undermined by violence and savagery, which the author implies is the primal instinct of humans. While many of us have taken this on as fact, there's plenty of research that strongly counters this notion, and as I mentioned, Rutger Bregman has written a terrific book largely about this subject called Humankind. Anita asserts that living with empathy is a win-win as we improve the quality of our own lives when we care about and help others. The Buddhist tradition says that caring for others is caring for ourselves. And the golden rule of so many religious traditions asserts something slightly different, but it's all, it seems to me, to be of a similar theme. 
Now, back to my conversation with Anita Novak. And if social media is on your Blue Sky Bingo card, you're in luck. So something we talk a lot about on this podcast and is just conversation generally is social media and the impact that social media has had on our society, pro, con, or otherwise. I'd love to know your thoughts on how it impacts the subject or the feelings of empathy that people might have. On the one hand, it's like everything. On the one hand, it should be pulling us together. It's exposing us to other people in ways we never were before. And on that side, you'd think it would increase empathy. On the other side, you're just bombarded. There's so much to take in. Perhaps you only have so much empathy to go around. I don't know. But I'd love to know your thoughts, and you probably see it with the young people you teach. What do you, What would you say net-net, so far at least, has the impact been from social media? Well, there's two big things, and it's not an opinion. I think there's a lot of research now that's out um, making the case. One is that the algorithms of social media pull us into echo chambers. And what that means is we're getting fed more content to which we are already aligned. Right. And so we, and it, and it pulls us further and further and further into um, the rabbit's hole of the extremes mm. and the younger generations who are more on TikTok than on Facebook and the middle group is an Instagram. The TikTok algorithms are even more precise, mm. pulling even harder gravitational pull towards the extremes. So it's really hard for us to relate to people who have different opinions and we become more steadfast in our beliefs. So I think finding common ground is becoming more difficult and polarizing people across um, the political spectrum is putting us into camps where we other each other. And that means that when we hear an opinion that doesn't align with ours, we dislike the person. And right. that is right. very, very dangerous. Right. And that's happening right. at the aggregate level. So that's the first thing. I also think social media is deleterious to our mental health. Yes. We are spending excessive amount of time doom scrolling and seeing extremes. And I think we're comparing ourselves to others. Uh, all of the, um, you know, the advertising is not a new phenomenon, but the fact that we are being bombarded by what we need to own or what, how we need to improve right. is there's no break in terms of just sort of like being a human being as opposed to a human doing. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's, um, it's breaking into our sleep. It's making us anxious and it's certainly making us lonely. So to the extent that the, the, the providers of these social media platforms are not likely to change is your suggestion that the solution is put the phone down. I mean, is there any other, thing you can do or, or, and, or you really mind your, your feed, you know, stop following people that are, you know, polluting your feed and follow things yeah. like the Optimism Institute and that sort of thing. Exactly. What, what, exactly. How, do, how do we get out of this? There's a couple of things. Um, one is what you were just alluding to, which is to actually have an intentional social media diet. Right. So just like we take care of what we eat in order to stay healthy we also have to curate the content. And that sometimes means putting time limits. It also means cutting off certain channels and making informed decisions that are proactive. That's one thing. And the other thing is to actually lean into more uh, self-compassion and self-empathy work so that we actually 
develop an inner well-being in the face of the social media content that we rub up against. One more thing about social media, then I'd like to talk to you about empathy in the workplace as well. But one of the things I wonder about is, do we have sort of an infinite supply of empathy? And the reason I ask is that because of social media and just media in general, we are exposed to so much. If you go back to the back to where we talked about it with evolution, you know, we used to worry about your family, maybe the small community and, you know, miles square around where you live. Now we will see floods overseas and earthquakes in Haiti and so much. And you want to be empathetic, but is there a point where it's almost too much to take in and there's a sort of an empathy fatigue? Is that a, is that a concern of yours? There is absolutely a threshold that is unhealthy that you can, that it makes you either numb or you're not capable and you just block it out. And what you're describing in terms of all the calamities on the planet, including the generalized sense that we have around the climate change doom, um, you know, eco-anxiety is a real thing for young people. They are inheriting a planet that they see on fire um, with all these different weather uh, circumstances and they don't know what to do. They don't see the leaders making any substantive changes. And so they know that they're kind of going into a world, inheriting a world that is going to be destabilized. So there is a sense of overwhelm that we have about all the calamities and all you know things that are going on with different people, landslides, mudslides, floods, everything that is not healthy for us. And there's also within our own personal lives, if you have given all of your energy and you're being empathic all the time in certain professions, this is like a known um, fact, that if you don't recharge your own batteries, you're at running at empty and then you're actually at risk of burnout. Sure. Um, so we have to be cognizant of our limits and we have to find ways in which to replenish our batteries. And there are two really good things to do there. One is to spend time in natural environments. So in Japan, they have something known as Shirin-yuku, which translates loosely into English as forest bathing, where you mm -hmm. spend time in the forest and you pay attention to the nature and, the, and it, there are healing properties in, uh, in nature. So that's really, really important. And then there's also ways in which we can quiet our minds and replenish our batteries through mindful meditation or self-compassion meditation. And I think those are really important things to do. Anita Novak mentioned something here that I think is really important. Increasingly in today's society, when someone expresses an opposing viewpoint, instead of simply disagreeing, we also lump that person into an opposing camp and extend our dislike of the message to a disdain for the messenger. Getting back to more constructive and civil discussions and exchanges of ideas would serve us all well. And while some of us wait, most likely in vain, I believe, for social media platforms to adjust their algorithms away from separating us, I'd argue it will be far more effective to change our own habits, clean up our own feeds, and take more breaks from social media in general. And when it's time for those breaks, taking them outside provides an extra advantage. The research on the value of spending more time in nature is consistent and conclusive. 
And this might be especially true for kids. Author Richard Love makes that case in his terrific book, The Last Child in the Woods. And it was here that he coined the great phrase, nature deficit disorder. And this work came out in 2005, well before kids' lives were disrupted by smartphones and social media. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted Anita to talk about her thoughts on the value of empathy in the workplace. So I'd like to to shift gears right now and and talk about empathy in the workplace, because I know you teach social entrepreneurship, you do some work with companies and executives. How, How do you see empathy helping in the workplace, how is it best put to use to, to set companies apart and on a path to success? So about three years ago, the world went upside down and corporate America figured out a big light bulb moment happened where they figured out, oh, empathy in the workplace is really important. <laughs> and it's not just important in defense. It's actually now we've figured out that it's important in offense. So I've been posting daily empathy posts for almost seven years without missing a day. And lately there's just a a, a avalanche of research that is describing how empathic leadership and empathic cultures in the workplace actually has a positive impact on the bottom line. So for example, you can attract the best talent and retain and engage the best talent if you have an empathic workplace that treats employees as humans first, they have a humanized workplace. People want to feel like they're entering a place where there's psychological safety and where they can be fully expressed in an authentic way. And you need empathic leadership to set the the culture norms for that. When you have empathy in the workplace, you have better communication, stronger loyalty. With better communication comes more trust. You can take more risks. There's more innovation. So there's just, you know, at every level, the business case has been made for empathy. What's interesting to me is that there's still a delta that I think we need to to decrease. And that is leaders, 84, I think 84% of of CEOs understand why empathy is important to their business. Mm -hmm. But seven out of 10 believe that they would be less respected if they showed more empathy in the workplace. Right. I think that's right. just something we have to. They think dialed. it's opposed. It, it opposes authority that there's something that empathy pushes back against authority somehow. Right. And they have to project a command and control as opposed to empathy. Exactly. And I think that that's, you know, to think that a high performance culture can only be command and control is yeah. so old fashioned. Right. Um, And the younger generation don't get that at all. Right. And another stat that's worth mentioning is that two thirds of employees writ large, I'm not talking about the C-suite, but just sort of the generalized employees understand that empathy is important across all stakeholder groups, including like customers, but only one out of five think it's rewarded in the workplace. And so there's another opportunity, I think. Yes. And, and within empathy, um, I interviewed uh, someone from the Radical Candor group. Do, do you do you include that as an em- empathetic, empathic thing to do, to be radically candid with people and be straight up on feedback and that sort of thing? Because I think some people would associate empathy as, as a little soft and that maybe you tiptoe around conflict and that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm guessing that's not what you're saying. I mean, is Radical Candor something you would embrace in a 
Well, yes, in certain contexts, but I also think depending on the conversation you're having, the emphasis should be on becoming a better listener to be an empathic leader. I think we are allergic in our culture to silence. And when somebody is sharing something that is uh, emotional and that requires a degree of, of, of gravitas and empathy, it's a, it's a useful reminder to sit with quiet because the person who is speaking needs a little extra time to process the emotions that are coming up when they're sharing the story. And the silence doesn't need to be filled with opinions or, oh, how that relates to me, or here I have a solution for you. Silence is actually golden to somebody who's talking about something important and deep uh, and allows them to even go a little step further if they're given the chance to sort of collect their thoughts. They might share even more. Right. That's one thing. Silence is golden. But the second thing I would say is, and this is well understood in nursing, psychology, social work, where people are trained to be empathic listeners, is the uh, act of repeating back some words that you just heard. Now, initially, when you do this, it feels kind of mechanical, kind of robotic, a bit weird. But to the person who's just finished talking, if you just reflect back a few words, they really feel heard. And that's a good feeling. So radical candor has its place. But I think empathic listening does too. Well, the silence and the repeating back, I think, is is really interesting because one of my and I, I'm guilty of it like a lot of people. Sometimes when someone's talking, I'm thinking more about what I'm going to say next than listening to what they're saying. And I don't know about you in a classroom, but when I'm in a classroom and someone's talking and hands are up, it makes me crazy. Because if, if your hand's up, you're doing that because you have something you're about to say and you're not listening to what the person's saying. So I think that silence is as much is as helpful to the recipient the person who hasn't been talking as it is to the person who is talking. Does that make sense to you? You're 100% right, Bill, because our brains are actually designed to respond and not designed to listen and to understand. Hmm. And so it actually takes a fair bit of cognitive work to sit in non-judgment without preparing to answer, sit with curiosity to take in what someone is sharing and really try to understand where they're coming from. It takes a lot of work. And when we are emotionally triggered, it's almost impossible, which is why I say like empathic leadership actually requires self-awareness about how we're physically feeling. Are we feeling anxious? Are we feeling stressed? Are we feeling triggered? And to learn ways to doubt and regulate. That's and the simple way to do that is to just learn how to breathe. By taking, you know, it's called box breathing, uh, you take in a breath for a count of five, you hold for a count of five, you breathe out for a count of five, you hold for a count of five. And some people prefer a count of four or, or six, doesn't matter. But doing that three, four times actually changes your parasympathetic nerve system where you can engage in listening because you're not triggered yourself. But it's not a tool that we learn to practice. And it's something that we have to put into practice. How do you see this manifest in the classroom? Or you've been teaching for a while. Or kids are kids, and they've always been this way. And they, or have you seen trends or changes in the way students interact with each other pre-pandemic, post-pandemic? Or I don't know if you were teaching before social media necessarily, but do you see a difference in the in the in the climate in the classroom? Hundred um, percent. It's kind of course corrected a little bit in the last year, I've noticed. So I've been teaching for about 12 or 13 years now. And immediately after 
the lockdowns and everybody went on to Zoom or whatever platform to, to learn online. That age category that I teach, which is sort of like late teens, early 20s, undergrads, they had spent their lives online on Twitter and other social media. And so they came into the classroom. It's almost like they were poisoned by strong opinions where they were canceling each other out. And you could literally right. hear how some people were being silenced by certain loud voices. And that was striking to me. It was almost like I didn't think I wanted to continue teaching anymore because in order for me to take a strong stand on, hey, guys, we have to hear each other out, I would lose students who didn't understand that we needed to have strong opinions. You know what I mean? In either direction. And it took a whole semester where I was finally able to tough love them and say, we uh, collectively are up against so many big challenges that if we do not learn how to listen to each other in order to collaborate, we will not be able to get where we need to go. And we need to lean into kindness. So I love what the Optimism Institute is doing because it's very much within the frame of positive psychology. Right. I'm a big proponent. Why do we spend any time thinking about our deficits when we could spend time thinking about what works for us and allows us to flourish and put our energy there? Amen. Um, how about uh, what is your view on the difference between uh, virtual interactions versus in person? So you talked about an exercise you do with people where you have them stare into each other's eyes and I suppose you could do that on Zoom or other platforms. But and if you want to get a debate going, ask people what they think about work from home versus making people come into the office. I, I find it fascinating, but I'm curious to know how virtual versus in person might impact your ability to express empathy and to feel it be be a recipient of it. Do you think there's a difference? There is. Um, I think I think it's possible to empathize with somebody and connect with somebody online. It's not possible to do the eye gazing exercise yet because we don't have the technology. Because right, right, right. if to, for me to look into your eyes, I'd have to look into that little green dot at the top of my screen, right? Um, I think we will eventually get there where we'll be looking anywhere on the screen and we'll be able to make eye contact. I think it's a matter of time. And so I'm grateful for the technology that allows us to connect over these virtual platforms, especially across great distances. And I think we're going to get to a place where we're, it's kind of like a brave new world where we might actually tactically feel a handshake or a kiss. Like I think there are engineers working on that, which is interesting, but there is no question in my mind that being in each other's physical presence makes a difference. I interviewed somebody recently, Michael Banasi, who wrote a book about touch. And we know that animals are very soothing to our right. bodies, our sure. systems, right? Like when we pet a cat or we pet a dog, like we enter a state of homeostasis. But he recently read research that even robotic dogs can bring us a degree of well-being it's not the same but a degree of well-being so again it's the same idea is that it's not all or nothing but there'll never be something that replaces human contact Interesting. we can feel each other's warmth warmth there's pheromones there's even in neuroscience the idea of social networks we've heard of mirror neurons where you know we we connect you know if you stub your toe i wins hmm. 
right? If you smile, I tend to smile. So that's emotional contagion. There's now research showing that even within groups, our neural connections are firing together, which is why, you know, when there's panic in a room, everybody is afraid and we all kind of like get the contagion. All of that can't be proven yet, I think, by science, but we know it intuitively and there's nothing that's going to be human connection. Anita shares some remarkable statistics here on empathy in the workplace. On the one hand, 84% of leaders think that empathy is important, but 70% think they'll be less respected if they show any. And by the way, you heard me fumble a little there with empathic versus empathetic. Back to my old pal Webster, it appears that both words are acceptable, with empathic being the more modern of the two. I was also interested to hear Anita say that our brains are designed to respond. It explains a lot about how we behave, and it seems to me that if we can work, as she suggests, on how we respond, more slowly perhaps, and certainly more thoughtfully and with empathy, the world would be better off. And the way she describes the change in her classroom climate is consistent with what I've read from Jonathan Haidt and with what Steven Pinker shared with me on this very podcast. She says students are being silenced and poisoned by strong opinions. Not at all a positive trend. And while we will surely continue to debate the merits of virtual versus in-person meetings and workplaces, I do agree with Dr. Novak's conclusion that nothing beats human connection. Now, back to our conversation. One more thing I wanted to ask you about you mentioned before that there's some leaders who feel like if they express too much empathy, they they lose authority or they don't feel as powerful. Is there a built-in sort of inverse relationship between power and empathy? I'm trying to think about in, in politics, at least today. You could you could pick Canadian politicians, American politicians, you pick them, who are in leadership positions, and you could have a list of adjectives. And empathetic is probably not in the top 30, if even on the list. It seems to me. Is that a... Is that a thing? Is there? Is it hard to be in a position of power and also be empathetic or harder? Or is that just a cop-out? There's real research that demonstrates the further up a hierarchical organization you get, the less empathy you have. And the scientists who study this believe their thesis is when you are ascending a structure you have your eyes on what's ahead of you. So your tendency is to empathize with people that you need to have on your side in order to climb the ranks. And you care less about the people that are at lateral or, you know, further down the food chain. And so leaders have to be very, very intentional and purposeful about empathizing with people that are in a different position. Same thing holds true for people with, Um, more wealth. And uh, you see across different nations, when there's bigger wealth inequality, there's Mm -hmm. less empathy. And people who share more of the common experience can empathize with each other better. Makes sense. I don't know if you do any consulting with parents, but I know that you are yourself a parent. And I'm curious to know how 
having children have influenced your view on this and or how you could you could sort of coach people or what your thoughts are on raising children with empathy because you know there is some innate selfishness i think in kids when it's you know fighting over toys in the playground and that sort of thing but then there's also this beautiful you know someone skins their knee and the kids run over to try to help so how do you, how do you think about influencing your children to be young adults and ultimately adults who have uh, a healthy amount of empathy great question so I'll circle back to my PhD. I mentioned at the top end of our conversation that one of the takeaways from interviewing social entrepreneurs is that they all felt this compulsion to act on empathy. The second thing that I discovered through the research, without exception, is that all of these social entrepreneurs had service, this idea of giving back, modeled in their families. And that has stayed with me. So I believe empathy can be modeled in the family and that, that the, this, the kids teach or learn, rather, based on their experience watching their parents navigate the world. So I'm very, very careful. I'm obviously not perfect, but I'm very, very careful about how I interact with people when my daughter's with me so that she learns what it's nice, what it's like to be kind. And I have to say it's been, it's been lovely on various occasions to see my daughter, like, seeing somebody who might be unhoused to say, Oh mom, can we go down to the food court and buy a sandwich for that person? You know, it's only seven. Yeah. So I love that. Yep. No, I, th- I think the modeling is, it, it is that sort of, you know, do as I do, you know, and, and really try to, to model that behavior. And I, I've seen that in my research, right? I ask people sometimes, you know, do you think you're innately optimistic? Are you born that way? Are you, and more often than not, someone talks about another person that they either grew up with or looked up to or, so, so likewise, um, with empathy, are you, you think you're born on a sort of a spectrum of empathy where some people just come out that way and, and have that in their nature or how much of it is nature versus nurture, do you think? Okay, so we're all born with the capacity to empathize, but on a bell curve. Okay, so there's outliers. There's the narcissists and some people who would talk about sort of atypical ways of expressing empathy on the spectrum. But if we talk about the typical bell curve of people, we all have the capacity to empathize. What happens to us in our formative years actually changes our neural connections in our brain. So if we're born into a family where there's stress, or violence, or neglect, or shame, or, you know, uh, unfortunate circumstances, our brains will wire differently, and will become more defensive, more, less empathic, as a result of those experiences. Same thing, the corollary, if you're born into a family where there's lots of nurturing and compassion and love, our brains will form differently. Now, when I learned of this initially, I thought, oh, how unfortunate. Like, not only are you born into circumstances that are not ideal, you'll grow up in a way that you'll see the world as hostile and you might be less optimistic or less trusting. So it's like a double whammy. But then I learned about neuroplasticity and the fact that we can all change our brains by thinking more empathic thoughts and behaving in more empathic ways. So there's no time in life where we couldn't decide to be more empathic and to actually rewire our brains. And I find that very hopeful. And that makes me optimistic about what we can do if we want to be more empathic. The the whole neuroplasticity world I find so fascinating. I had a wonderful talk with a man named Richie Davidson who teaches at the University of Wisconsin. And and he talked about simple things he works with people on and practice he's done for years, which is before every meal, 
he will stop very consciously, look at what's on his plate, think about the farmer who grew the corn, think about the delivery truck that brought the corn to the store that was purchased by, you know, him, him at the at, at the grocery store and then, you know, the loving hands that cooked the meal, all those things before he starts eating. He said, I challenge people, if you do that one meal a day for the next week, come back and tell me if you feel better about the world. And 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 he said, if you do that over time, you're literally re, re-channeling your brain and it'll change your entire outlook. Oh, I love that. And I bet you the food tastes better too. Yeah. And you take your time and you're actually paying attention to what you're doing. I mean, it's kind of the ultimate definition of mindfulness, I think, is actually knowing what you're doing. So it seems like with a lot of things, including this topic, it might be the best of times. It might be the worst of times. On the one hand, it feels like we're at each other's throats and there's political division and eco-anxiety and all these things you mentioned. On the other hand, there's people like you writing books like Purposeful Empathy. There are folks online, there's a growing, you know, interest in mindfulness and nature walking and all the things you talked about. How do you think we're doing? Are, are we on a good trend towards the world that you would see us uh, hopefully aspiring to? Are we on the downtrend? Where where are we right now? And where is your hope and optimism? I think in the short term, it doesn't look good. And in the long term, it looks great. I think humanity just like, okay, there's this quote that I like, which I think is from Aeneas Nin, which goes, the nature of this flower is to bloom. I think mm. humanity, is, its natural trajectory is to ascend to a higher level of consciousness. And there are some people who are doing what they can to help guide us towards more purposeful, empathic, optimistic lives. It's fun to be part of that community. But in the meantime, given the system that we're still in, a bunch of systems that I think are very extractive, exploitative, and you know, entropy-ish, in the short term, we're going to see a lot of a lot of suffering and calamity because we're not moving fast enough. But in the long term, we'll be okay. Well, on that note, <laughs> I think that's a good. No, listen, I think I, I think that, and we see this in the media. Bad news happens very quickly. It's very much in our face. But meanwhile, we're making slow, steady progress towards the world being better. And I think it applies here. And I can tell you, you know, I went to business school 30 years ago. We didn't talk about social entrepreneurship. You wouldn't talk, you wouldn't use the word empathy in a classroom. A lot of these yeah. things are fairly new and but latching on thanks to folks like you writing books like yours. So let me let me share something that I came across recently. So we've all heard of the United SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And the research says that we're not anywhere near where we need to be to get to them by 2030. So a couple of years ago, a foundation in Sweden developed what's now called the IDGs, the Inner Development Goals. And they're having their second annual summit. And I encourage everybody to check out the IDGs because I think the idea there is if we look inward and very Gandhian, right? Yeah. Become the change we want to see in the world. If all of us do our part, we'll get there faster. And I think there is a movement afoot. And, you know, hopefully we can expedite that. I'd love to see sooner rather than later yeah. us get to that place. I think we're getting there. And I, and I think if folks like yourself and there's so many others out there and I'm trying to pull them together on podcasts like this and on social media because I think there's strength in numbers and 
you know, pendulum swing back and forth and all this divisiveness and at each other's throat, I think can't last forever. We're going to, we're going to get back to what made humans humans and why we survived in the first place, like you mentioned. So I, I encourage everyone to read your book, Purposeful Empathy. Look for other resources like this online and other places and uh, to get our heads out of the doom and, and, and be better to each other. So anything else you'd like to share with us, Anita, before we sign off? Yes. Do you have one minute for a little anecdote? Absolutely. So when I learned about the neuroscience of empathy and brain plasticity, I did all sorts of experiments. And I want to share a story that happened to me about 12 or 13 years ago when I was at a FedEx store during the holiday season. And I was in line for half an hour, got up to the counter. I was a little bit bored, a little bit annoyed, but the woman who greeted me was nasty. Oh boy. And I was triggered and I wanted to call her out on it. Yep. And I had a flash insight that I could practice empathy. So I just asked her the very simple question, are you okay? Uh. And she took a second to discern if I was being sarcastic or passive aggressive, but she right. felt that I was being sincere and she burst into tears. Oh my god. And she said to me, I've been working double shifts for two weeks straight. My son's at home with a fever. I think I'm getting sick. It's three in the afternoon. I haven't even had a lunch break. I'm just flat out exhausted. Yeah. And I reached for her hands and we both were crying, holding ah. hands across the FedEx counter. I hated this woman 20 seconds earlier and now I yes. adored her. And that is what empathy can facilitate. And so I think what I'd like to end with is there's research that shows when we are in connection, emotional resonance with someone the pleasure and reward centers of our brain light up, just like when we're high on psychedelics or eating delicious chocolate cake. And physiologically, the stress hormones like cortisol drop and the feel-good hormones like serotonin and oxytocin go up. So being in empathy and connection with someone else is good for us. And I think if we all practiced a little bit more empathy on a regular basis and kind of tapped into the feel good that it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that wouldn't be a bad addiction to have. With that, Anita, I'm going to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and for all your great work. And I encourage all of our listeners to read your book, Purposeful Empathy. It's terrific. It'll make you feel better about yourself and make you want to treat others better too, like that woman at the FedEx counter. Thank you, Anita. Thanks, Bill, for all that you do. The idea that an inclination towards empathy and serving others is wired in our formative years makes a lot of sense to me, and I imagine it does for many of you. And I'd add that now that we understand and embrace this notion of brain plasticity, we can see how observing others demonstrate kindness has ripple effects with people of all ages, not just children. And I love the line, the nature of this flower is to bloom. I looked it up and it turns out it was actually from Alice Walker from her poem, Revolutionary Petunia. What a great title. And if you heard someone just yell bingo a minute ago, it's probably because they had the sustainable development goals as a box on their card. And Anita brought it up, not I. 
But she also added inner development goals or IDGs, which is a pretty cool concept. Essentially, the people spreading this notion are saying that without nailing the IDGs, we'll never accomplish the SDGs. And how about that FedEx story? It's a beautiful one. And we should all remember that everyone we encounter is going through something. And it helps when we approach them with kindness and empathy. I hope you enjoyed this Blue Sky conversation with Dr. Anita Novak. If you like this sort of content, please consider subscribing to this podcast if you don't already. And check out the Optimism Institute on social media. Also, if you have a minute, let us know how you think we're doing. And please feel free to share any ideas you have about future guests for this podcast or subjects you'd like us to cover. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke. And I thank you for listening.